Hello and welcome to Everyday Anarchism's series on Kim Stanley Robinson's triptych of potential future Californias, three Californias. If you missed the trailer, this is going to be a monthly series after this episode on the Wild Shore. There'll be an episode next month on the Gold Coast and the month after that on Pacific Edge. Our talk about the book sort of runs together, but for the most part, Stan and I stick to the formation of the trilogy, how he came to be a science fiction writer, seeing that The Wild Shore is his first published novel, and then what's going on in The Wild Shore and whether or not it is an example of anarchism. Spoiler, I think it is. Stan isn't so sure. You can listen and see what you think. You can read the book. Then you'll really have an opinion. If you haven't read the book, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. If you're interested, why don't you hit pause, put it away. There's lots of other great podcasts out there and lots of other great episodes of Everyday Anarchism. And sit down and enjoy The Wild Shore. It is a rollicking Mark Twain-style adventure novel with a lot to say about politics, history, and America. That's enough for me. Now my conversation with Kim Stanley Robinson. All right, so uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, welcome back to Everyday Anarchism. Um, we spoke, I guess it's la- it was last year now, the uh, years are all running together about your more recent book, uh, The High Sierra. And I didn't tell you this at the time, but the reason why I was interested in The High Sierra was I had just grabbed a copy from The Wild Shore. Uh, sorry, I grabbed a copy of The Wild Shore from a, a little free library at the community park here in Chapel Hill. I hadn't ever read any of your works um, before the Mars Trilogy. I was introduced to the Mars Trilogy by my environmental science professor in mm-hmm. high school. So that was wow. in the late late nineties. That was when I discovered um, your work. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. I'm just um, that's amazing. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if it's amazing, but it was a it was a pleasure to you know be at that kind of high school and have that kind of teacher. And so I saw the Wild Shore, and then I thought, oh wow, this is really fascinating. I should see what else he's been up to. And the High Sierra hadn't come out yet, um, and so I was thrilled to talk about that book, and I loved that book. But then I also spraying this idea on you that we could go back and talk about this this trilogy, Three Californias. I mean, honestly, it was a very classic experience. Uh, Stan, I, I, I knew your name. I'd read some of your books before. I liked the cover. It sounded interesting. I think Ursula Le Guin maybe had a blurb on it. So I just thought, hey, let's see what this is. And uh, I've subsequently read the other two books in this series. Uh, my favorite is Pacific Edge. We'll, we'll get to that. But um, thank you so much for coming back on the show uh, to talk this this early Kim Stanley Robinson trilogy. Well, um, I appreciate it. It's it's fun for me to talk about that trilogy, which was indeed early, like my first novel, my maybe fourth and fifth, a long, long time ago. And it was a mighty struggle to uh, think through them, write them down, get them published. It was it was more or less the story of of the across the first decade of my career uh, and and also probably the five years before I got published, 
I was working out the ideas and working on the wild shores. And and indeed, I I just recently found a a truly terrible four or five chapters of a early version of the wild shore that didn't have anything right yet but i was obviously <laughs> fumbling around and this is when i was maybe um, i think a sophomore in college so uh, close to eight or nine years before i got wild shore assembled so it was a long time coming that whole thing wow okay yeah so i wanted to start with that like where were the idea so I have two sort of questions about the origin, which is one, when did you first have the idea for the Wild Shore? And then let me set it up for the listeners a bit. The the trick of these novels, the, the introduction in the tour book, Three Californias by Francis Spufford. I'm not, I'm not sure how to say his name. Yeah, uh, Spufford. Francis uh-huh. Spufford, you know, described yep. it as a, a triptych. It yes. is three different futures in California or really Southern California, Orange County that are all the same and all incredibly different. So the first one is the wild shore, but I'm wondering, was it a trilogy? Was it a triptych to begin with? It almost was. I had the idea of um, sending Southern California back into the, what could you say the early 19th century to back to huckleberry finland and uh uh, bombed into a it was a post-apocalypse i had that idea because i wanted to think about southern california as if i were huckleberry finn and and which is what i thought i was when i was eight years old Uh, uh, (laughs) and so uh, that idea was sort of there but then this really happened, and I'm happy to tell the story again. I, I was going to college at UCSD. My parents were up in Orange County where I grew up. And so I would go back and forth. It was about a 90-minute drive or an hour and 15-minute drive from UCSD to my parents' house. And it, I did it quite often. And one time, I'm not sure when, but I think I was a freshman or very early in my sophomore year in college, uh, already having had a kind of an idea for the Wild Shore, maybe, I'm not positive about that, but I was, the thing is when you drive from San Diego to Orange County, you pass through Camp Pendleton, the Marine base, it's quite huge. Uh, You get to Oceanside and suddenly you're in empty land as if nobody had ever uh, moved into Southern California and Orange County was already very dense. San Diego was pretty dense. And there was this big empty stretch of the coastline, which was Camp Pendleton. And the Marines had some things going on there, but they weren't visible. And so I was driving north from San Diego to Orange County, and I saw the border of the counties going from Oceanside to Camp Pendleton was like a cutoff from one kind of land to another, one kind of history to another. And I thought, man, depending on laws and history, what what we do to a place, it looks completely different. And what if, and then it all came to me in a rush, I would do three futures for Southern California. And I was very into science fiction. It was new to me at the time. I had not been a kid science fiction reader. So newly in love with science fiction, I thought I'll make three of them. They'll all be equally distant in the future from now. One will be this post-apocalypse, which I think I might've had in mind. Um, The other one will be a classic dystopia where everything's gone wrong. And the other one will be classic utopia where everything's gone right. This is, not actually what happened, but you see what I mean. I saw the three 
And then I also had the thought that I should have one person that lives in all three of them. And that will show how an individual life is overdetermined by the by the history that you're living in. And you don't have um, absolutely free will or free choices. You have to deal with the history you're, you're handed. And this person will be an old man and have lived three completely different lives. And only the reader will know that um, this character has had three lives in three different histories. And it, it struck me like a sledgehammer. And by the time I had finished that thinking, I was into Orange County, just a few minutes from my parents' house, drove in, immediately wrote it down. So I didn't forget it because I've had some great ideas, I think, but have forgotten them. <laughs> so uh, this one I was um, utterly determined not to forget because it seemed to me to be a golden notion for doing something interesting with science fiction and in thinking about history and how individuals relate to this, their society and their history. So I wrote it down. And at that point, we're, uh, I'm, we're really talking 1971 or 72. And then I had to go through everything else. I had to go through college. I had to learn how to write a novel. I, had, I wrote a different novel first. I wrote another. The Memory of Whiteness, Ice Henge, and The Wild Shore, I more or less wrote in the same years, mm. bouncing, bouncing from one to the next. And, and so when I started selling short stories, um, I had a wonderful editor. My first editor, Damon Carr, was my teacher, my mentor, my, my, my patron, uh, and my first uh, buyer of my stories. But after him, I moved on. I, got, I sold a story to Terry Carr. And Terry Carr ran the new Ace Special series based on his old Ace Specials. So he was a consulting editor for Ace. He gave them one book every two months. They called them Ace Specials and they got a more promotion than your typical Ace paperback. And Terry said, do you have a novel? I'm really fascinated. It sounds like we've got two sets of three novels then. We've got the three novels that became this triptych and then also the three novels that you were working on. So um, what was it that made the wild shore the one that you was it just furthest along or or how how did that become the your first kim stanley robinson's first novel it was the first one in my mind and so i always came back to it but i i struggled with it and in the meantime i was writing short fiction and Damon Knight was my editor, my patron, my teacher, my friend, really, um, a wonderful man. And he, I was selling short stories to him that got longer and longer. And finally, I sent him a novella called On the North Pole of Pluto. And he said, um, this is good, but you've got some elements in it that need to be pulled out and made longer later on, because there's a lot of uh, backstory and uh, extraneous material that maybe you think is important and it is, but not for this story. It's uh, you need to maybe make a novella trio out of it. So I was working on on the North Pole of Pluto to the point where he bought it. By far the biggest, longest, and most significant of my sales up to that point. And he was right. I, that was the third story in a sequence that I then wrote the first story 
about Emma Vile, another novella, sold it to Ed Furman at FNSF. It was on the Hugo ballot. Ice Edge was becoming big in my mind, but I didn't have the middle section of it. And when Terry Carr came asking me for a novel, I sent him the idea for The Wild Shore because I had written The Memory of Whiteness, but it wasn't right. It had been bounced off of some very sympathetic editors who said, you know, we like you, we like your writing. This this book just isn't right. The Wild Shore felt more plausible to me as a thing that Terry Carr would go for. And, I, and that was true. He liked it. He bought it. And then I was focused on Wild Shore almost as a matter of um, what is the editor most interested in who's interested in me? And so the the way publishing worked then and now is once you break the barrier and sell one novel, that publisher wants five novels from you as fast as possible so they can fill a big spot on the bookshelves. And you wouldn't be just an, an isolated uh, a sport, as they call them in biology. One novel by a writer is not a a good commercial idea. You want to go to that shelf and that spot on the bookshelf and see six novels instantly. So when I sold Wild Shore, Ace said, do you have any more? And I said, yes, uh, kind of. And so Ice Henge was closest to completion and I filled in the middle novella, uh, which is was by far the best thing I had done up to that time and something I still am very proud of. Uh, what I don't even remember what it's called. Uh, because it's a middle section of Ice Henge and, and Jalmar Naderland. Um, I don't remember what it's called either. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the middle chapter, uh, we can look it up later. It doesn't really matter. The the three characters, Emma Vile, Jalmar Naderland, and then Edmund Doya, the, that's what matters there. Um, and so uh, Wild Shore came first, Ice Henge came second. The Memory of Whiteness was kind of the, the one that I hadn't, been satisfied with, neither had editors been satisfied. I went back at it in my early 30s, and I had actually finished working on that in my early 20s. So it was a weird kind of collaboration between a 21-year-old a and a 31-year-old with many more abilities than at 21. And I got it up to the point where I felt comfortable publishing it, The Memory Whiteness. So that was the sequence of my first novels. It was Wild Shore, Ice Henge, Memory Whiteness. They went back 10 years at least, maybe more. And then when I, those were all published, then the decks were cleared for the Gold Coast. And at that point, I had had a lot of experience. I had had a lot of thinking about how to make a novel. And I, the Gold Coast is the one that I think is the first novel of my life where I feel like I'm fully on top of my game. I managed to get lucky. It's a novel about my own youth and my family and my friends. And so I'm very, very fond of the Gold Coast. And so that's how the sequence went. Okay, the threes, the threes keep stacking. So you had three novels, uh -huh. one of which ended up being three novellas, and then another yeah. one ended up being a, 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 a triptych. I can't do three with Memory of Whiteness, I guess, off the top no, of my head. No, it was a, a collaboration between a young man and a and an and another young man, slightly old. <laughs> okay, uh, that sounds good. So let's let's finally um, tell the listeners uh, the setup, or I'll, I'll I'll try and give the setup for the 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 three novels, and then you can tell me you know what I'm what I'm wrong about. So Wild Shore is the first one. Um, 
it is uh, about California after the bombs have fallen and, you know, the nuclear, uh, absolute nuclear wasteland has been averted, but nevertheless, the nuclear disaster has fallen. And yeah, you say early 19th century, people have reverted in a certain way to a, a an older version of society there's there's hunter gatherers among other things um it's the one insofar as this podcast is called everyday anarchism it's the one that most reminds me of an anarchistic vision of the future in the sense that there's no clear hierarchy in the group that we spend most of the the time most of our time with and then there's various people who want to create what you could call vertical um, systems as opposed to the more horizontal one. Uh, the main character is Hank Aaron, Henry Aaron mm -hmm. Fletcher, um, for yep. anyone who's interested in baseball. Um, the the character who's in all three novels is a mentor figure, Tom Bernard, and we won't say how old he is in the novel. Um, and it's set in the 2040s, if, if memory serves. Um, and the crucial thing to me is how much better life seems to be in the scenario in which the nuclear apocalypse has happened, as opposed to uh, the uh, the Gold Coast, which is the one where capitalism has gone un untrammeled. And it almost feels to me like I would rather, at least in the vision that you've created, live in the world where the bombs have fallen than live in the world in which capitalism has has just done whatever it wants to with the landscape of California. Well, I think that's fair. Um, I'm not sure that it is realistic, but as a as a um, a vision of how we feel about it, uh, it certainly mm -hmm. captured my feelings at the time. Um, I was young. I was. I grew up in Orange County, an incredibly war-wing environment, and then I went to UCSD and was intensely radicalized, and probably the most radical politics of my life in those years, uh, being trained by Marxists, being in the midst of the Vietnam War protests, and feeling like America was a horrible mess and that we'd be better off living like Huck Finn. So there's a certain romanticism there. The mechanism of nuclear war, or in this case, neutron bombs only, which was a thing back in the 70s. It would kill people, but not infrastructure. And there wasn't much radiation afterwards. I don't know how realistic that was either, but I used it as a device to kind of clear the table. And then also a positive feeling towards Huckleberry Finn and that Mark Twain America uh, agrarian small town. And you're right, it isn't exactly anarchism, but it does resemble the Paleolithic system of group consensus with a headman. So my character Steve's father, the old man Nicolin, is the head of the village, but only by uh, general agreement that he can take on the responsibility without getting too big for his britches, and he's a calm and, and good leader. And if if people wanted another one, then he would be out. It, it is extremely, um, I don't know if that's exactly what anarchism is all about. There are so many <laughs> definitions, but um, it has that aspect of there is no sheriff. There are no laws. A group, a small group is existing 
and a general sense of mutual aid and also necessity, the lash of necessity. They have to grow their own food and then they're into mutual aid when times are tough. So it's a there's a romanticism of small town America of the 19th century, which I don't think was exactly that way, but more so than now. And certainly there was political thinking going on. It wasn't just an accident. I'm not comfortable with the nuclear <laughs> war device to make it happen. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is the, I mean, so to to veer a little bit into politics, I mean, this is a show that has politics or political theory at its heart, and also I sort of resist the idea of politics at all time. I mean, first of all, my definition of anarchism is quite, is quite loose. I'm totally fine with your definition of anarchism. I've read the piece you wrote about um, anarchism for the uh, collection that Margaret Kiljoy put together, just the idea yes. that, that anarchism oh, is good. just a sort of pushing towards horizontal, pushing towards justice, pushing towards democracy, as opposed to, to me, it would be antithetical to anarchism. And the listeners have heard me say this plenty of times. If you had a real, real strict definition of what anarchism would be, and you tested every person's orthodox ideology to make sure it was exactly anarchism what comes next i guess you need some sort of judge and police system to make sure the anarchism stays anarchism <laughs> and then it's not anarchism anymore I, yes. I i'm very well aware of who i'm talking to there of course is a novelist who has composed a science fiction utopia that is often described and described in its own terms as anarchist the dispossessed is 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 the place to have this conversation but uh yep. i think and i would be happy to have that conversation with you sometime that'd be fun but we won't have that conversation right right now but in this loose lowercase a sense of anarchism and the example i was going to use is at one point in the novel we've got this this man the mayor of san diego who wants to revive america as a military empire and he sends emissaries and they say oh, yeah. we want to speak to your officials i believe that's the word they use officials and for this yes. community this neolithic hunter gatherer community of the kind that you know i think people like lewis mumford and david graber maybe they wouldn't describe as capital a anarchists but whose values accord with this looking backward anarchism they're just like we don't what do you mean elected officials that's just not a thing and so a world without yeah. officials where yeah. everyone works together under the lash of necessity in a village that's to me one of the clearest distillations of anarchism you can have without having long committee meetings which they do have in the dispossessed committee meetings about what their values are and if it's anarchism yeah well i am a huge fan of the dispossessed and i've written about it a couple of times and what i think that is is the joke that Le Guin makes about uh, div lab, the division of labor, once you have a an advanced society with technology and a division of labor, you don't have anarchism, you have socialism. You, it's not like everybody goes out and does everything. Mm -hmm. You have a division of labor. And I would say that the society on Anaris in the dispossessed is not anarchic. It is in fact, some kind of syndicalist, um, <laughs> Uh, socialist state, but of course this this game of definitions we yeah. could go on forever. And I we think could. you're right to to say let's dispense with it and talk about more interesting thing than definitional boundaries. Um, and it is strange but true that in the Wild Shore, as in parts of my Mars novel, I have quite a 
a non-hierarchical um, post-patriarchy, post-capitalist society that is working on theories of mutual aid and volunteerism and solidarity. And, and as I said in that introduction about um, the, the Killjoy uh, collection on anarchism, what if we think of uh, all of the left and all progressives and everybody who wants a better society as being um, choosing a point, a point on a future history? If it's a day after tomorrow, you could be a Democrat fighting for Congress in the United States. If it's 500 years out, you want purely horizontal anarchism. And so I have this stepladder or this sequence that is um, anti-austerity, uh, social democracy, democratic socialism, uh, something, something, anarchism, <laughs> whatever. So, uh, but everybody is on the same team. They're just picking different horizons of the future that they want to focus their attention on and their valorization of. But let's imagine that we're all really on the same team there. So we don't have the infamous infighting on the left, which wrecks so many projects by people saying, well, you're not a, you're a Menshevik or you are a liberal, <laughs> you know, you're a libertarian socialist or, a, or, a, you know, all of the micro definitions and the party lines effectively that happen on the left that wreck our communal effort and our solidarity. I want to dispense with all that and say that a moderate Republican and a full on anarchist are on the same team at different timeline, uh, different spots on the timeline of goodness. And, um, and this is just a way to think about it. Yeah, no, I'm I'm more I'm more or less sympathetic to that view as well. And then I want to add the additional irony that uh, the anarchists are as good as any other group at setting those firm lines and boundaries yeah. and excluding people. And uh, Emma Goldman tells a wonderful story that she doesn't know any anarchist people who have kids that are not being fully indoctrinated into anarchism. The kids are given no choice. They're being raised the exact same way that the Catholic kids are being raised. This is our oh, catechism. Yeah. <laughs> Read Kropotkin. You have no choice. Yeah. And then she says, and of course, the kids, yeah. as kids do, rebel, and they end up not anarchists. So the anarchists should be different and historically haven't really been. So I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I've been involved in like listserv discussions about whether someone is uh, an anarchist or merely a libertarian socialist. And for the life yes. of me, I haven't figured out one, if there's really a difference there, but more importantly, why the hell one would care about that difference insofar as we are and should be pulling together to avoid the kind of thing that happens in, in both uh, the wild shore and the gold coast. Yes, I would agree. And I, I can only, I want to be sympathetic to the people who get into these intense disputes, although um, not too sympathetic, but here's what I think is going on is they are fully convinced that these are important distinctions. It's not the narcissism of small differences. Mm -hmm. These are big and important, crucial differences for even figuring out your tactics as well as your strategy. So fair enough. You have to talk. You have to talk. Whatever. But in the end, I think you got to um, regard it as united front and um, hold together as allies, if not identity, um, um, if not completely in agreement, there are still allies in a larger cause. And I, I utterly reject notions of purity. This, this attempt to be pure 
is wrecking us all across the board. People are trying to be more pure than the next person. And this gets into a ridiculous little mini civil war where, and with horrible consequences, including death, but in, in any case, disagreement to the point of not working together. So I reject purity. I say we're all into a mongrelized and composite politics and we might as well accept it and be more flexible. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, I like your way of thinking about um, time frame. I've, again, listeners have heard me say many times that uh, when Hobbesbaum is, is describing the origins of the various philosophies, liberalism, communism, socialism, anarchism, he says they all agree that what he describes as a gentle anarchy is the end result. They just have some disagreements about tactics and, and timeline. And those can, I can imagine those mattering a lot at some point. In in twenty twenty three, I can't imagine those disagreements. The timeline is is now yeah. the, ta the 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 tactic yeah. is whatever gets you know whatever gets people fed and removes you know greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Yes. That's very, it's, 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 so that we do have an overdetermining a crisis that yeah. um, makes a lot of these distinctions irrelevant. We, and is exactly right. We have to feed ourselves and decarbonize. And then 50 years on, if we've done that, then we can begin to uh, continue the discussion. Then but... we can argue about democratic socialism versus social democracy. That sounds, yeah. that sounds good. I like them both, but um, <laughs> and maybe maybe um, that really is, to me is, um, well, they're not the same. I, I know that they're not the same. I, I don't want to collapse these distinctions because some people care a lot and they are real. But still, we got to uh, all put our shoulder to the same wheel right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is a kind of crude version of William James, but you use the pragmatic maxim and say, does, Democrat, does, does it make a difference whether you're applying the ideals of democratic socialism versus applying the ideals of social democracy? I would say in 2023, it doesn't make a difference. These ideas are, are not going to do different work in 2023, in the uh, society that we have now, if you wanted to move towards social democracy and you wanted to move towards democratic socialism, I can't imagine you would do a darn thing different. So I would argue those ideas, the differences have no cash value to use James's uh, mm -hmm. capitalist mm -hmm. metaphor at this current time, which is not to say they don't A, have cash value in a, in a different time and place or B, have the psychological cash value of it mattering to someone what their ideal way of organizing the world would be. I mean, this does matter to people, not just because they think the ideas will matter in the world, but because it matters to themselves who, who they are. Yeah, and to give credit um, to people still um, worrying and arguing about that distinction, um, because the, we need to be generous here. Um, social democracy is a form of capitalism. <laughs> Democratic socialism is a form of socialism. They're not the same, but you could imagine one turning into the other. And here's the thing, the people arguing for immediate uh, and a, a rather hypothetical transformation of consciousness of enough voters to make it democratic that we can't solve climate change and the destruction of the biosphere with any form of capitalism. We need socialism 
and the nationalization of everything and especially electricity and etc to to make a successful escape from uh the uh the mass extinction event that we're beginning and and now this is a a point that some people will make that you it's hard to deny on the other hand then shifting to the other side of this horrible dilemma or problem um we are in a capitalist world we got very little time if you could alter capitalism and make it work for the environment for people and for the biosphere adequately to get out of the mass extinction event and start decarbonizing, then maybe that's what we got to do. So it's, this is sort of a tactical question, I think, more than a deeper philosophical question. And of course, we can talk about this all night, but maybe we ought yeah. not to. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, I actually think this gets us into both of the other two novels, but I don't, I don't want to go there just yet. I mean, one thing that popped <laughs> into my head as we were talking is I do like the idea that in the in the post-apocalyptic world things could be better than in the world determined, uh, you know, created by capitalism. Even if mm -hmm. the suggestion is maybe you know the neutron bomb is not the right way to do that. But I especially like a communal um, and 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 left-wing version of this fantasy because despite the modern zombie stories origins in the Marxist filmmaker, George Romero, um, mm. the, your, your, your traditional now post-apocalyptic scenario in America is the zombie story. And the zombie story, in my opinion, people can disagree about this. It really boils down to a right-wing, usually boils down to a right-wing libertarian fantasy, trust no one, love will kill you, you're only out for yourself, violence is the answer, that sort of thing. And these are thrilling. These these stories are thrilling. And I think it is because if you're an office drone, the idea of the apocalypse is a great idea. And then once the apocalypse happens, you will get to be uh, the kind of marauding hero of uh, like a barbarian fantasy. And to suggest, as you do in The Wild Shore, that maybe life would be better if you were uh, a uh, a member of a paleolithic or neolithic society after the apocalypse than if you were a lawyer. But it was because of communion and community and the environment, as opposed to the you know some sort of masculine fantasy of power and control. And I don't see that often enough. This is one of the few places that I that I see that and I really appreciate it in the wild shore. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And I was thinking about all that at the time too, that um, the small agrarian uh, America with a, the most basic of technologies and an intense need to grow your own food, enough for a, a group. I imagine the village of Onofre as being um, I'm guessing here, but something like 500 people. Well, that's a lot of food, and you have to spend most of your time intending to grow enough food to feed, and then fishing. So you have a solid source of, of protein and food offshore and can go out there and catch a lot of it. That's very, very important that you wouldn't have if you were in Montana or in Iowa. The ocean is an incredible resource, and that's why a lot of people live near oceans. So I did think out what you might call the caloric balance as well as the political balance. And 
I hate that zombie stuff, which the I think there's a you're right. It's a compensatory fantasy that anything would be better than being in an office drone. And <laughs> it's like JG Ballard. Every yeah. disaster that happens is better than uh, <laughs> suburban boredom. And that's not quite right because the suffering and there is a chapter. There's a moment in the wild shore where Hank goes down to the graveyard and mm. there's a whole bunch of infants. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of people died in their 20s and 30s that the agrarian life is harsh. And without modern medicine, you are thrown back into an unhappy uh, health situation. And I did make that point. But in any case, they still are doing better in terms of being engaged with the world and alive and uh, gifted with the problem of having to do physical things and to cooperate with other people. And that that community is definitely the most healthy, way, way more healthy than the one in the Gold Coast. So yes, I was explicitly making that point um, for sure. And, and th there are values in the Wild Shore that come back in Pacific Edge with good health care. So yeah. that makes Pacific <laughs> Edge much different. Yeah, excellent. Um, I definitely need to move on, but I have to say, you know, it does seem I, the Twain thing makes perfect sense. To me, it's Emerson and and Thoreau the, as, as a story, as a coming of age novel, The Wild Shore fits the Twain thing and the mm -hmm. and the frontier and all that stuff. But in the idea of a of a village in which everyone works and they don't need elected officials that sort of thing i mean i was just reading an essay by emerson i'm blanking on what it's called right now where he says you know i know what you're going to say you're going to say i just want everyone to give up specialization of labor and become a farmer and it's not quite that but if you don't have your hands you know involved in the work of making the things that you use or the things that you eat you're not living the life that you should be living and the wild shore seems to me exemplifies this transcendentalist vision we talked about the transcendentalist last time as well i think i can't stop talking mm -hmm. about thoreau and emerson uh, but well, of course they both come up multiple times in in high sierra oh and they're they're fundamental to my uh, washington dc novel green earth where my frank vanderval becomes a uh an acolyte and and reader of thoreau and emerson and there's a lot of quotations and there's the story of emerson's um eulogy for thoreau after thoreau died and no i'm very in love with that stuff but i must <laughs> say when i wrote when i wrote the wild shore i knew next to nothing about oh that's this. That's fascinating. Um, it was all Mark Twain. And I mean, Henry Fletcher, especially with the Hank Aaron thing, but Henry <laughs> Henry Fletcher, the initials are on purpose. It's, it's Huck Finn. Um, it's back on the river, although it's back on water. It's back on the ocean. And it has that um, 19th century American life. Now, I suppose that Twain lived at a time where Emerson's ideas were universal across American culture. I think that's right. Yeah, he was expressing that stuff. Yeah, and that he makes, had seen that makes it. Sense. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He had he had lived it as well. Yeah. The last the last thing, because uh, I mean, I'm an American literature professor. Uh, they invent, at least speculatively, this is not a spoiler. Uh, they invent whaling 
at the uh, at the end of the novel, and it does seem to me that like Moby Dick is is sort of looming on the horizon. I I asked you about Moby Dick last time we spoke as well. I'm pretty obsessed with Moby Dick, but I did want to get the the Moby Dick reference in there because they're describing what they would do if they were going after a whale, and I just think you know we're just waiting for Stubb and 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 Starbuck to get <laughs> to get out there and get these harpoons out. That would be that would be a whole nother um I'm re I always reread Moby Dick when I'm here in Maine. So mm. I um I when I finish I start back at the beginning. And when I'm in Maine I I read about a third a, a quarter to a third of Moby Dick and then uh, I just put it away and I come back to it the following year and I mark the page. It's a it's it's so good that it just sends shivers down your spine. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's almost supernaturally good. I'm thinking about this Herman Melville, and because none of his other books are quite at its level, um, he's interesting always, but he's never in command, and he is so in command in Moby Dick that it's mysterious to me. But but again, when I wrote The Wild Shore, I, I knew next to nothing about Melville. And but the, but I have seen often gray whales going yeah. up and down the California coast in their migration right offshore. And uh, I had been sailing with a friend of mine in a Hobie cat when a gray whale came up right next to us. And he, the part we could see was much longer than our Hobie cat. It was an awesome moment in my life. And that happened. Uh, before I wrote The Wild Shore. So I was thinking, if you were concerned about food mm. and um, you had the capacity to preserve, which maybe they didn't, in any case, it seemed like an idea they would want to pursue. They're fishermen. There are these monsters uh, zooming by right offshore. Why not try to get one? Yeah, okay. Um, you said Moby Dick wasn't the direct inspiration to the last last time I asked you about Moby Dick. So I'm just going to keep asking until Moby Dick is the right answer. Um, <laughs> I love Moby Dick. What a, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm almost to the chapter right now. He's explaining the power of whiteness, the, the terrible power. He also goes through the chapter where he explains every other time a whale has stove in a ship. So as we would not under, <laughs> we would not be reading Moby Dick, Ishmael says as a horrible allegory, which of course it is. <laughs> it is such a horrible <laughs> Melville is way funnier because he's so deadpan. Yeah. His high comedy is is pretty um you need to be past all of the the myth about Melville past everything else and just read it sentence by sentence and laugh when it's funny and you'll find yourself laughing a lot. It's very funny. And I mean, I have students tell me like, ha ha ha, the book is called Moby Dick and it's about a sperm whale. And I'm like, you think, <laughs> you think Herman Melville didn't like, <laughs> like, yeah, he made, he made a big mistake. He accidentally wrote a book about a sperm whale and the whale was called Dick. And there's a scene where they squeeze sperm together and all touch hands and experience yeah. rapture. And you, you dear 18 year old, are the first person to have have noticed this. Anyway, yes, um, yes. Well, the whole story of Melville and Moby Dick, the 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 gay British sailors coming to him in his old age because they've managed to see through the obvious. Uh, Ishmael and Queequeg and their night in bed together and it goes on and on and on and on I mean the book is it's not subtle 
The book is infinite. It's it's <laughs> when people play the game of the greatest American novel. As much as I love Huckleberry Finn, the the disastrous ending, the final quarter of it, uh, uh, blowing up in Twain's face. I mean, Moby Dick is hidden shoulders, the great American novel. Not that that's even a real thing, but if you <laughs> wanted to play that game, he wins it. Uh, we uh, we play this game a lot in the English department, but I agree, he wins it. Okay. Yeah. So I think the place to get to uh, the Gold Coast is to say that we, you know, the conversation we were having about democratic socialism versus social democracy, what this would mean, whatever, it might seem just to, you know, leftist intellectuals talking in terms of the wild shore, but in terms of the Gold Coast and the Pacific Edge, it's very much not. There are explicit discussions of democratic socialism and social democracy and how one gets there in the Pacific edge. And then yes. the gold coast is the story of what would happen if you didn't ever try to bring about democratic socialism or social democracy or, or anything else. And before we launch into that, I want to say, and I want your thoughts on this. This book is called three Californias for a reason not that it's three different, you know, ways that California could be, although it is that, but it's three different ways that California is. It is the um, California of the Sierras and John Muir and of the pioneer and of nature. It is, it is the, I mean, California is one of the places most associated in uh, the United States with development and the mall and freeways and of course california is the is the left coast is the closest state in the state still to this day um to social democracy that obviously when we're thinking about orange county in the 70s and 80s the the younger listeners will not know its uh right-wing reputation but obviously and we talked about this in the high sierra episode there is a a progressive left-wing tradition in california I would say at this point, surpassing any other state. So it's not that these are three potential Californias. These are three California, three strands of California as it exists that have been drawn out. And this is the Orange County Developers California. That's what oh, the Gold Coast is. Yes, yes. It was written in the middle of the Reagan years and Reagan's, uh, you know, He's been outpaced in badness by um, Bush Jr. and by Trump, but he was very bad. <laughs> and uh, so we'll stop there. Reagan was very bad. Kim Stanley Robinson reminding those of us who don't remember the Reagan era or like myself were born during it and have only faint memories just how terrible it was. This is why I remind you that if you start reading the Gold Coast now, you should be able to be done with it by the time the next episode comes out. Last Wednesday of August is my plan right now. And the Gold Coast is a truly fantastic novel, one that was designed to show what happened if what was happening in the Reagan era just kept happening for another 30 years. I don't think Stan felt like he was predicting that because he imagined other futures 
But if, and this is the key thing, if the Reagan era lasted into the 2020s, this is the world we were going to have. And those of you who are listening to this in the United States and the UK especially know that the Reagan era lasted into the 2020s and the world we are living in and the dystopian monstrosity of the Gold Coast, they are pretty much the same. That's why this novel is so important. This is one of the reasons why Kim Stanley Robinson is so vital because his vision is so wise and precise. So get reading and come back and listen to our conversation in about a month. As always, the music you're about to hear is by David Hill. <laughs>